Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. This is Jill, and my guest today is Yvette Dion. Yvette is a journalist, pop culture critic, and magazine editor who covers culture and politics through the lens of race, gender, class, and size. Her highly shareable reported features, cultural criticism, and personal essays have appeared in multiple digital and print publications, including the New York Times, Time, Shondaland, Cosmopolitan, Glamour, Harper's Bazaar, and Bustle. She's also the author of Lifting As We Climb, which was long listed for a National Book Award and won a Coretta Scott King author honor. Her latest book, Weightless, is out December 6th. Yvette, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. Thank you so much for having me. It is a joy and an honor. So can you start by giving our listeners a brief introduction to Weightless? Absolutely. So Weightless is a collection of essays primarily about my life as it relates, of course, to my weight. And it also interweaves research about the way in which the world treats fat people and considers fat people and derides fat people. So overall, I would say it is a nonfiction work about um, about the way in which we treat bodies in our society. So I actually wanted to ask you a little bit about um, that. You said it is, you know, nonfiction, but it's also um, interwoven with stories of your own life. And, you know, that's one thing I loved about this. And I say this as someone who oh, thank is, you. you know, worked on you personally with articles you've, you've edited, things I've written for Bitch. And I'm, the format reminded me of some of the, the, articles that happen with bitch where there is that intersection of personal narrative pop culture references and also research journalism and i'm yeah you know, i'm wondering why you sort of approach the book that way and and didn't just make it a straight up memoir honestly i don't think my life is that interesting right <laughs> so i don't i don't feel as if i've had experiences that are wholly interesting on their own enough to turn them into a narrative And so I was thinking a lot about what is the value of this book 20 years from now, 30 years from now, 50 years from now. And it's not my own personal narrative, but I personally love memoir. I read memoir all the time. But for me, I wanted to create a really indelible work that thought a lot more about the way our society thinks about fatness opposed to the way our society thinks about me. Right. And so I thought that was a much more valuable approach to this sort of work than just detailing my own experience. And um, there are a lot of other books that do that and do that beautifully. I didn't think there was anything more I could add to a memoir canon canon about fatness. Um, it was it was mostly just about our broader societal perspective on people who are fat. Um, I will say, you know, that's sort of what the book is about and and the lens you look at it through. But in the introduction, you do discuss um, some recent health issues you've had related to your heart. And you mentioned that 
you started the book before your diagnosis. And then, you know, the book exists now as you're sort of dealing with this life altering diagnosis. I'm, I'm wondering, you know, how the book looks now in its final form compared to when you sat down and started to write it before that diagnosis? Yeah, that's an excellent question. I mean, being diagnosed with heart failure changes everything. Your life literally changes overnight. And then to have the compounding pulmonary hypertension on top of that, my whole life looked different. By the time I sat down to revise the book and to think about the book in its newest iteration or the iteration that's being published, at first, a lot of the essays that have a happier tone, happier, funnier, thinking about the things in my life that are important but aren't about health, those existed from the beginning because that's the stage of life I was in when I started the book. So I was thinking about relationships. I was thinking about dating. I was thinking about my younger experiences with uh, mental health. All of that was a part of the book, but the pieces about health itself came later and it really shifted the tone of the book because Uh, you know, when we're talking about mortality and talking about really serious chronic health issues, it it shifts the tone of anything. It shifted the tone of my life. So it it was almost as if I were merging two components of my life. So the, the funnier, happier pieces with the hopeful, optimistic pieces with the seriousness of the illnesses and trying to find a way in which to make all of that cohesive and all of that merge together. And so pop culture really was the the through line that brought that all together for me. Yeah. I, I imagine that um, there were probably parts that did need maybe rewriting a lot to sort of mm-hmm. frame it in this new way that just changed everything, as you said. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, The book that I originally wrote, oh goodness, four years ago, five years ago, it's a completely, it's a completely different book now entirely. Having gone through these experiences with chronic progressive illnesses, it it made everything make sense. And, And what I mean by that is when you're a fat person and coming up in a fat body, you're gaslit all the time, right? Because you're looking around and you're like, okay, my body is different than everyone else's bodies, Everybody, everyone else's body. And I'm being derided for that and mistreated because of that. But everyone's telling me it's all in my mind. That's, that's not actually happening. That's all in your mind. And also if you became thinner, that wouldn't be a problem. So once I started having health issues and doctors focused on my health issues and not my weight, I was like, oh, wait, no, my entire life made sense then. Mm -hmm. Um, No, our our society really does treat fatness as if it's a deviance and you, it has to be justified by an actual health problem to no longer matter. So the book had to, to shift to reflect that and that new reality and that new prism through which I see the world. Yeah. I, um, related to so many of the stories that you were you presented in this book um from like those early catfishing days on AOL but also <laughs> did that did that yeah um but also a lot of the the medical fat phobia in a in a different way like not you know to the same 
um, degree that you have seen it or had to dealt with medical issues, but I was in a, I went to a doctor's appointment, um, once for like, I found a lump in my breast and all the doctor, mm-hmm. the doctor's just like, yeah, go get a mammogram. You're probably fine, but let's talk about your weight. And I was just like, I, yeah, that look on oh your my face. Goodness. And I, oh like, my goodness. Oh my gosh. Yeah. I switched doctors after that, <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but it's just one of those things that it happens, I think, to all of us. And I think it's something you have to sort of learn to stand up for yourself in those moments. And it's really difficult to be able to say, I don't, that's not why I'm here. Like, that's, I'm not here to talk about that. I'm here to talk about this other medical issue that I'm having. And I think you sort of, you show a good progression of, of experiences of what that's like. Mm-hmm. I mean, one, I'm so sorry you had that experience. That's awful. And it's such a common experience for fat people. But if you try to tell people this who are not fat, they look at you like you have a third eye growing out of mm-hmm. the middle of your forehead because it's such a, it's such a medical malpractice actually to treat fat people as if obesity as an illness is the root cause of any issue that you're having from a cold to a heart attack, that it really does make you feel as if you're losing your mind. And so what I've had to come to as I've gotten older and and realized how rigged the system is, honestly, for fat people, is if I don't advocate for myself, no one else will. So one of the things I do when I go to the doctor, it's a little more difficult now because of heart failure and the way that heart failure is tied to fluid pooling in your body. But like I've declined to get weighed. There's Mm -hmm. no reason, unless I'm here literally to be under anesthesia, which dictates weight, or I'm here to get a plan B pill, which is, um, can be, have a correlation to weight. There's no reason why I'm being weighed right now. Can we actually focus on the medical issue at hand. And we're not taught to be that way. We're taught to have a deference for doctors and to treat doctors as if they're this all-knowing, omnipresent force who know better than we know about our bodies. But the reality is, if you are paying attention to your body, you can feel every ache, you feel every pain, you know when something is wrong, and nobody knows that better than you, whether you have a medical degree or not. And so then it's a matter of finding a doctor who takes you seriously, who is willing to treat your actual ailment and not focus primarily on your weight and who respects your boundaries when you say, I don't want to talk about weight. Weight has has nothing to do with the reason why I'm here. And for me, like, I think that really crystallized for me with going to see this before I had heart failure, but going to see a gynecologist for fibroids who then referred me to the Metabolic Weight Loss Center. I'm here for a fibroid. I am not here to be goaded into paying a metabolic weight loss center to have bariatric surgery. That works for some people. I'm not interested in that and making that very clear and plain. It really is like working a muscle almost of like you have to do it over and over again to grow comfort with it and to be comfortable with people not responding well to it. Yeah. Yeah. That scene where, um, you go to the doctor and she kind of came in like accusatory being like, why do you think you have this? And then it ended up being even worse than like, there were more found than even just the one that you, you came in thinking you had, like, I read that. I was just, I I got so mad on your behalf. (laughs) 
<laughs> angry, right? Like it's so angering because in hindsight, every one of the symptoms that I had, now that I have heart failure, every one of the symptoms that I had was a heart symptom. The, the fluid pooling in my ankles, the lower back pain, the gastrointestinal issues, the feeling like I'm, I'm out of breath. Like when I ascend the stairs, I'm out of breath. Like I can't catch my breath. All symptoms of a heart issue. If she would have done one ultrasound, just a single, like, let me just, yeah, you're, you're a fat person. Okay. But let me just take it one step further. Let me just do, let me just refer you to a cardiologist. If she would have done her job, mm-hmm. it wouldn't have taken three years for me to be diagnosed. I would have known right then. And so it could have started treating it right then. Yeah. I think that's one of the hard things. That's also difficult to explain to people who are thin and have never experienced it is that it's not just standing up and advocating for yourself or having people advocate for you. Like you you mentioned that your mom would sometimes your parents would do that in appointments with you. If you do advocate for yourself, there are doctors who will see that as you being, um, difficult quote unquote, absolutely. And get like marked as that in your chart. Like it's a, it's a black mark against you for standing up for yourself in a way that I don't think then people understand because that follows you then through your health chart. However long down the road. Absolutely. It influences the way other doctors interact with you. They're assuming coming in that you're going to be a quote unquote difficult patient. And so they're less likely to be open to you pushing back which is the reason why for me, it was really imperative to find a health at every size doctor who doesn't, all of my doctors at this point from my cardiologist on down, never mention weight to me ever. Like weight is never something that we have a conversation about. It's always about how do you feel? How does your body feel? What are your symptoms? Is fluid pooling in your body? If so, where is it at? Like actually listening to me when I'm making a complaint usually like, oh, my ankles are swelling from this medication or, oh, uh, my lungs hurt. Like recently I've been having like this lung burning sensation because now I've also developed acute asthma. Of course, of course, asthma reappears when all this other stuff is going on. So I'm having like this burning sensation in my lungs. And so I had to go to the doctor like, hey, I'm having this burning sensation in my lungs. Never once did my cardiologist or my pulmonologist say, oh, it's because you're fat. It's because I have these actual conditions that are deserving of treatment and are worthy of treatment, whether I'm fat or not. Yeah. I'm glad you mentioned finding a health at every size doctor. I think that's, um, you know, if people are listening who are in this position of having a doctor, they don't like, or they don't trust, that's always a good resource. I, the doctor I see now, um, was a recommendation from a fat friend because Mm -hmm. I'm like, okay, if you had a good experience with her, I feel like I trust your, um, I trust, I trust you and your recommendation. So that's also, if you have people in your life that you think you can ask, that's, that's important. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I I've done that as well. So until I was an adult, I just saw all my mom's doctors. Like we just share doctors because I know that they were listening to her. So they would listen to me. Yeah. Um, that said, I do appreciate that in the book, you talk about the COVID vaccine and how it was like the one time being fat finally had like a weird net positive. But I also mm-hmm. know that I, I did feel conflicted about getting the vaccine because it did feel like I was jumping the line in a way. And it, it, I mean, I got it. I took advantage of it, but it was a weird mental trip that I was not expecting. It felt so like conflicting is a good word 
it felt like at any point in time, they were going to pull the rug out from under us. And the, the, the push and pull of that is, yes, you get prioritized, but that's because Dr. Fauci, God bless him, is on TV every day saying that obesity is at the same level in terms of developing severe COVID as a heart disease or a lung disease. Or if you've gone through cancer and you have a compromised immune system, like all of that is on the same level. So it was a conflicting feeling because it felt almost as if it, as if we were admitting that he was right. Yeah. Yeah. If I, if I get, if I jump this line, I have nothing else going on, but I go to the front of this line and I'm prioritized for a vaccine and I get it, then I'm admitting that this logic that obesity is on the same level with, with actual people who have cancer, if I'm, if, if I'm do this, then I'm admitting that that's true. And that was a really difficult place to be in, but also I wanted to live, you know, I wanted to live. I, I still up to this point, knock on wood, have not had COVID and I want to live. So that's what it takes is admitting that, okay, I'm a fat person. Therefore I'm at risk of having severe illness. Can I get my vaccine now? Then it was worth it. Yeah. That's sort of what my struggle was as well, because even, you know, when all of that was being said on national TV, I still was also reading these articles that were like, the science doesn't necessarily back it up. And is it exactly, is it really that they have bad outcomes because of their weight or is it because of this medical fat phobia and that's why you know and so yeah it did feel like if I get this vaccine am I admitting that maybe they're right I still don't know I still got the vaccine I still don't know I I still still don't don't know know, but I got I've gotten every vaccine I've gotten every booster I still don't know if if in the early days should I feel good or bad about that decision it's, it still feels conflicting. Yeah. And I think, yeah, I think especially too, because of the reactions of other people who weren't fat and did not get to jump the line because there was also a weird disconnect of, okay, so you're, you clearly believe what you're being told about our weight having an effect on it. And yet you're still somehow mad that we're getting this vaccine, which could limit that. Exactly. Okay. <laughs> it made no sense. It made zero sense. It made zero sense. And I think also in those early days, COVID now is treated as if it's just a normal everyday part of our reality, which is odd because more than 1 million people have died in the United right. States. So it's strange to pretend like this is just a normal thing. And also we have more knowledge about the disease and how it spreads. When the vaccines first were produced and now widely distributed, it was like the wild west trying to get an appointment trying to it was the wild west so any perceived advantage for some people felt like a slight right um but in reality we were all just trying to figure it out like it was just a chaotic time for everyone and there's no need to develop resentment about who got a vaccine when um because nobody really knew what was going on yeah yeah absolutely Um, I do want to shift gears a little bit and talk about reality television because that comes up a lot in your book. Um, (laughs) And I, you know, I think some of us have 
and I speak for myself in this, have like complicated relationships with some of the shows that are mentioned. Um, you know, I started running years ago because of The Biggest Loser. And that's like weird for me to admit. But like I would watch that show and I'm like, oh, if these fat people are running, I probably can too. But then like when I look back on that show now, I'm like, that was that was not good. <laughs> and, and then of course my 600 pound life. Um, I, you were, you sort of unlocked something in me when I read that chapter about my 600 pound life, because I think that show in particular forces a lot of us to recognize our own internalized fat phobia that we don't necessarily have. And I, I read that chapter like, oh yeah, I, mm -hmm, yes, I understand what you're saying here. Can you sort of like expand on that a little bit? Yeah. So I've watched all of these shows. I still watch my 600 pound life that might get me canceled, but it's fine. I still watch my 600 pound life. I watch a thousand pound sisters back in the day. I watched the biggest loser and what I came to find by really surveying my reaction to the show, to all of these shows, what comes up for me in surveying my reaction is that so often what I'm grappling with is, whoo, I'm glad I'm not that fat, mm -hmm. right? Like I'm still, I'm a fat person. I exist in a fat body. I'm also in the fat liberation movement, what's referred to as a small fat. And also the way that my body is built is it allows me to like fit clothes really easily. And it's almost as if when they're designing plus size clothes, they design it with bodies like mine in mind, right? And so when I started surveying my reaction to these shows, I just found that I was repulsed by other fat people, by the way in which they eat by the fact that they're immobile, by the fact that they need people to take care of them. All, all things that are possible for any of, any of us at any given time, right? Fat or not. But I realized that that is the way we think about internalized anti-Blackness. You can have internalized anti-fatness. It is a thing. You can be a fat phobic fat person. And it's something that, it's almost like that open secret among fat people of looking at someone else and being like, do I water like that? Do, whoa, do, am I that big? And having that thought in your mind, I just wanted to make it plain that fat people are human. We're three-dimensional. We're complex. We are layered. We are unlearning the way that everyone else is unlearning. And the way that uh, less fat liberation, but body positivity positions it is that we're all this big, harmonious group who understand what fatness does, who understand fat phobia, who understand how our society is set up to degrade fat people. And therefore we are not complicit in that system. And I wanted to lay it out very plain using myself as an example that we are, that we are, and that in order to move past that, it requires a lot of unlearning, but to pretend like my 600 pound life hasn't been on for 10 seasons, 11 yeah. seasons, and that the only people who are watching it are thin people is unrealistic. It's just, it, it wouldn't be as successful as it is if that people weren't also participating in this show, participating in the Reddit threads, participating in the conversations, watching it while eating, which I often do. We are also complicit in that system. No, for sure. I, um, I think 
I just think about also sort of like friends of mine who are former fat people who have lost a significant amount of weight through whatever method that they have done. And, and they still also continue to watch it as well for, I think a lot of the same reasons as like, for them, I think it's this almost like a, um, a a reminder of like what not to do so that they, they don't end up fat again. And I'm just like, that's, yeah, that's hard. That's hard. That's hard. And it's complex. And there are no easy answers. When the new new season of 600 pound life is released, whenever it may be, I'm most likely going to watch it again. I, I it's it's trying to get to a place of developing empathy for myself, like grace for myself in that, and also empathy and grace for the people that were watching on screen, which is why I refer to them in that essay as subjects. We treat them as subjects and not human, that we all fall short. We all are in places in our lives, whether it's weight related or not, where we, we want to be in a different place and we're not quite there. All of that is true for everyone. And so having grace and empathy for these folks as they're on this journey and that they're even willing to go to the lengths of going on television sometimes to actually save their lives. Like we've watched people on this show die. So to watch people be willing to put themselves out there for the whole world to see because they are that committed to wanting to get out of the bed, to wanting to walk again, to wanting to have relationships, to wanting to live is commendable and it's not something that we should as a culture poke fun at or think is worthy of entertainment right yeah i think about that show in the context of um body positivity or the fat liberation and that in- that includes the people on my 600 pound life and i think absolutely people there are people who claim to be for body body positivity on like a societal level and fat liberation. But then if you point them in the direction of the people in my 600 pound life, there's like a threshold for them. And if you're above that, they're not really counting you. And I'm like, well, then you're not really for what you claim to be. That's right. That's right. Because these people on this show are seeking help and they can only get help from a handful of doctors in the United States who are willing to take them on as patients, who are willing to help them lose weight if that's what they desire, who are willing to keep them on their program even when they fall short. They, the people on that show are really, they really are in the way that you put it, like the threshold for, are you really committed to fat liberation? Because the reality is we see people on this show who have to either fly or drive to Houston to see the doctor. And airline seats are not big enough to accommodate them. And car seats are not big enough to accommodate them. And they have to be uncomfortable traveling because we haven't made airline and car travel equitable enough for people of that size. That is fat liberation work. Yeah. Yeah. No matter how big you are, your, your world shouldn't get smaller because you're getting bigger. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Greetings from Evergreen Podcasts. We're rolling out a listener survey and we want to hear from you. The information in the survey will help us gather statistics and in turn make our shows more appealing to advertisers. I know most people don't like ads, but this is one of the only ways our shows make money and help keep their lights on. We promise it will only take a few minutes, but the impact on our podcasts will be tremendous. As a token of our appreciation, we'll randomly select one lucky participant each month to win an exclusive merchandise package from Evergreen Podcasts. Head to evergreenpodcast.com slash listener survey to help a show and possibly get some free stuff for doing so. We can't thank you enough for the support. Now back to the show. So um, one of the other things you talk frequently about, and you mentioned this a little bit in um, the introduction when I asked you to describe the book, is you talk a lot about the relationships that you've had uh, romantic relationships and sexual relationships that you've had, and you get really vulnerable in a lot of the stories. And I'm, you know, what was the writing process like for you to sort of retell these stories to to an audience um, to read about these experiences of yours? Hard, very, very, very hard. And I think that is mostly because as much as I've written publicly, I've been a journalist for 10 plus years and have written personal essays for half of that. People know a lot about me or believe yeah. they know a lot about me because of the work that I I have done, particularly when I was in my early and mid twenties, but I've never had to be that vulnerable. And to have to think through those experiences through the lens of its relationship to my weight. Like that was the first time I was doing that sort of work publicly and in that fashion. And it was really hard. It was really, really difficult. And I I think because just being in relationship with people and romantic relationship with people is already a very vulnerable place to be in, to recount the ways in which I've mistreated people because of their size. And I've been mistreated because of my size makes it even more vulnerable. And then to say, okay, I've written this, now here it is for the world to judge is the most vulnerable place you can be in. And then for me now to be in a new relationship with someone who was not in my life at the time when I was writing these essays and was not in my life at the time this was happening is a very vulnerable place to say, hey, and now read my book, right? And so, but I I didn't think it was possible to do this book without doing that work because so often we think of relationships and attraction and romantic partnership as if it exists in a vacuum, as if preference does not have anything to do with socialization, as if your ability to be in relationship or not is a personal choice and not a political choice. And so I wanted to undo that and really expose it in the realm of the way in which we think about fatness. Oh, but it was really difficult work. I I say all the time, um, the essay about the relationship I had in college with a fat man 
maybe the end of my career, but it felt really important to do that work and to do it publicly in a way that was honest and was vulnerable and was truthful because I know I may be the person writing it, but I'm not the only person who's experienced it or who has done it. Yeah, no, I, I, I think that's a good point that um, I think what I liked most about this book is that, you know, just that relatability. I mean, I, I say that as a white woman. And so there was obviously certain elements and nuances I couldn't always relate to in the essays, but a lot of it did feel familiar. And just knowing that I did not experience those sorts of things alone, that there are others. And I feel you will find other readers who have that same reaction of being recognized in that way. I surely hope so, because that's really what it's for. You know, when you are, it's the reason why body positivity has been a lifeline for so many people. Uh, I, I write in the book about seeing Gabby Gregg, who at the time was going by the name Gabby Fresh, in a bikini for the first time. And like what that does for you as someone who, prior to the internet, sometimes you could be the only fat person in your town or the only fat person yeah. in your family. And you think your experiences are yours alone and that you're experiencing this rampant discrimination all the time by yourself. But then you see that there are a community of other people who have faced and experienced the same indignities. And it creates this sense of community, really, of like, I'm, I'm not alone. And pop culture is so influential in that. And, you know, I think about the show Shrill yeah. and on Hulu and how that first um, season when they had the pool party episode, like what that did for fat people to see that yep. and to see that, like, I've had that experience. Like, I'm not alone. That's a powerful thing to do. And I hope that my book helps to continue to usher in that kind of community of, you know, representation is not everything, but it's something. And it's important for people to know that their experiences aren't theirs alone. And there is a community of people that they can rely on who will support them through the hard part of being a fat person. Yeah. That, that pool party scene, I, I just like cried through that entire, yes. mm -hmm. <laughs> because like, I've, I've been there. I just like the summer before that season, I went to a fat positive pool party and like, I wore a two piece and I had never done it before, but it was a space where I could feel safe and comfortable doing it. And I had never felt that way before in my entire life. And then to see that sort of same thing reflected on screen in a TV show. I was just like, oh, okay, yeah, this is real. This is a thing. It's real. Pop culture is so influential in that. Like Shrill is the best example of what fat representation can be because yes, your, your lead character is struggling with the nuances of being fat and the way in which that impacts all of her relationships whether it's her romantic relationships, her friendships, the way she shows up at work, the way she shows up in her broader society, all of that is good and true and real. But we also see her be like a three-dimensional human who hurts and hurts other people and is just trying to navigate the world. Like her whole life isn't about being fat. And that has been my problem with like Kate on This Is Us, for instance, who's entire art from beginning to end had some relationship to the size of her body. Or with this short, this Disney short, 
not because that's not a part like body dysmorphia is real fat people experience body dysmorphia it's a real thing but do every representation of a fat does every representation of a fat person have to deal specifically with our weight solely right and so i'm hoping that weightless can be a part of kind of a canon of cultural reference around Yes, we are fat. We know we're fat. It influences our lives in these way in these ways. And also it's not just about being fat. So I'm gonna actually that's a good follow-up or tie in with what I was gonna ask next, which is you talk about this canon. This is a book podcast, so I'm going to put you on the spot and ask All right. <laughs> what other books, you know, for any of our listeners who are perhaps interested in reading more of these, you know, um book that fit this sort of genre, what ones would you recommend? I highly, highly recommend Land Well by my friend, Jess Baker. Highly recommend. Um, Jess is amazing on and offline. And also that particular book really captures the nuances of being fat and especially fat childhood and what fat childhood looks like. Highly recommend Land Well. Um, If you're looking for something a little more sobering, I would recommend Hunger by Roxane Gay because it it talks about a lot about the relationship between food and fatness, dysmorphia and fatness, violence against fat people, like literal violence against fat people. So Hunger by Roxane Gay. Um, a newer book um, that I would recommend is um, Bad Fat Black Girl by Sally Bowen. And it's just fun. It's just a fun read. It's one of, it was my, one of my favorite reads of last year, just really, really fun, but also deals with the nuances of fatness in a really real way as well. And then if you want to go back a little bit, anything by Miriam Kirby, I highly recommend who was writing in the early aughts was one of the first books and, and um, blogs that I was reading about what it was to live and exist as a fat person and then my last recommendation would be, oh, I had to choose one last one. It would be Belly of the Beast, probably by Deshaun Harrison. Oh, one more, one more. This is not okay. really in this vein. It's not really in this vein, but it's really, it was really instrumental in me understanding the relationship between fat and history, like the, the history of fatness, which is fear of, uh, fear of the black body, I believe, by Sabrina Strings. Yeah. Highly recommend. Yes. Uh, I will co-sign all of those. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, there's a canon. Yes, there is. There is a canon. There's a canon. And this is just like a small sampling of it. It's, it's phenomenal just to watch, you know, as someone who, um, has been fat for like most of her life, it's the amount of books that are coming out now. Mm-hmm. so different and it's really wonderful but also I'm sort of like a little sad for past me who would have loved to have these in like middle school and high school and even college you know to to know that these experiences are like I again I'm I wasn't living in a little silo by myself as a fat person that a lot of these experiences are shared among all of us right and that there are so many fat writers and activists and thinkers we have a fat pop star in Lizzo yeah like there there there's so much now that I'm thrilled that if you're a young fat person 
that they, you have so many places to look to realize, well, wait, there's nothing wrong with me. Yeah. Right. Like, I, you know, it's a beautiful place to be in, in the canon. Absolutely. Well, it's well-deserved place in it. Um, Thank you. So I do have to ask, this is not really related to the book, but knowing you are pretty active on Twitter <laughs> and have one of those fancy blue check marks, like the real ones, <laughs> I do, I'm just sort of wondering and have to wonder your general thoughts about everything that is happening in Twitter land these days. Oh, goodness. What a question. Um, I've been, I, I will say Twitter has been instrumental to my career. For I joined Twitter when I was 19, deleted all those tweets because they were not good. But I joined Twitter when I was like 19. And it was a way to like build community with writers because I didn't, I'm I'm a native New Yorker, but I haven't lived in New York in now years. And I needed to build community and relationships with other writers and with editors and with people who could speak my name in rooms that I had not yet been in. And Twitter was instrumental in that of people just being like, you have, you're, you're one of my favorite Twitter follow follows and that translating into work and into money and into capital. And so I am sad about where Twitter is. And also I don't think if I had to put on, if I had a crystal ball, I don't think Elon Musk is going to own Twitter for very long. It's going to lose him too much money. He's going to end up selling it probably to a group of people who can help restore it in terms of you know twitter he thinks of it as like a place where people could just say whatever and do whatever and it's a place to make money but actually tech is is a scary place to be it's not like building cars it's a scary place to be it's not building a rocket you have to deal with the governments and with compliance and 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 the ftc and the fcc and so i'm hopeful that Elon Musk is not the permanent owner of Twitter. And in the meantime, I'm thinking a lot about, I wonder what the next thing is. Mm -hmm. I wonder where the next place is for us to build community and uh, movement in the way that Twitter has. Like, I, of course I have Instagram, I have Facebook, but there's no place for me like Twitter, which is like words and wittiness and fun and like culture building. Yes. You know? So I'm, yeah. I'm sad about the state of affairs, but I'm hopeful it'll get better. It's a good answer. I wish I could have the same optimism, but maybe, <laughs> maybe you will be proven right and I will be proven wrong. That sounds good. To I me hope because so. Because <laughs> he was talking about it's going bankrupt. Who knows? Yeah, it's only been a week and I'm just like, oh boy. Okay, Elon, good job. What have you done? Yeah, <laughs> exactly. It's, it's been two weeks and it sounds like chaos. Um, well, I have really enjoyed talking to you. I just have one question left, which is, is okay. there anything you'd like readers to take away from reading waitlist? Take away from reading waitlist. Well, what I'll say is being fat is not hopeless. Like I, I intentionally infuse this book with humor and wit and fun and hope that not only being fat, but like heart failure is not a death sentence. Pulmonary repetition is not a death sentence. Like I'm here. I've had heart failure for three years and I've had pulmonary hypertension for two and I'm up and moving and I feel good mostly every day. I have my days, but what I hope that people take from it is that our world can change if we're willing to force it to. 
You know, like the thing I think a lot about is like power conceives nothing without a demand. If we want our society to treat fat people better, we have to organize around these key issues that are important to fat people and lobby around them the same way they lobby around gun control, right? And that it's possible, like a better world for fat people is possible if we're willing to work toward it. But in the meantime, it can be joyful and happy and hopeful and optimistic. And we can have healthy relationships with ourselves and with other people. And we can stand against this tide of fat phobia if we do it together. Awesome. I love that answer. Yvette, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a real joy. Thank you. Readers can sample and borrow the titles mentioned in today's episode on overdrive.com and our library friends can purchase these titles in Marketplace. Professional Book Nerds is proud to be an Evergreen Podcast signature program. To learn about other Evergreen Podcasts, visit evergreenpodcast.com. Our podcast is produced, recorded, and edited by Emma Dwyer, Jill Grunewald, and Joe Skelly and presented by Overdrive. To learn more, visit professionalbooknerds.com. My name is Cindy Burnett, and each week I interview at least two traditionally published authors on my podcast, Thoughts from a Page. We talk spoiler-free about their books, so you can listen whether you have read the book or not. And then we delve into things that you most likely won't hear about anywhere else. The importance of the cover design, why they included various aspects of the story, personal details about both the books and the author's lives, and so much more. You can find the podcast on every major platform and learn more about it on my website, thoughtsfromapage.com. Thanks so much for checking it out.